You're listening to the Passionate DJ Podcast, episode number three. Welcome to the Passionate DJ Podcast, where it's all about becoming a better DJ through passion and purpose. And now, your host, David Michael. Right, episode number three, and I am super excited to present this episode of the podcast to you guys. I have a very special guest. Her name is Jessica Finner. She's also known as Fortune, and she has a whole plethora of tips for small-time promoters, um, and which are also useful for DJs because we're all kind of part of the promoter game if we want to get gigs. Um, this is, episode is just loaded full of content, so I don't want to spend too much time on the intro. And in fact, there's so much here that we ended up having to split it into two different episodes. So here is part one, and let me introduce Jessica. Hey, what's up, everybody? Thanks a ton for tuning in, and I'm super stoked to introduce my first ever guest to the Passionate DJ Podcast. Jessica Finner, also known as Fortune, was raised in Bristol. She was classically trained in flute, piano, and saxophone, but it was rave culture that eventually hooked her when it erupted in the 80s and 90s. At 19 years old, she crossed the Atlantic and moved to California with 140 bucks in a suitcase. After a quick back and forth, she ended up in Milwaukee, where she currently resides and has been a key player in the music scene there ever since. Now, outside of her DJing, Jessica is an experienced promoter. In 2009, she started a promotions company called 4U Events, which has since been rebranded as a part, and that was in 2011. Now, I've had the pleasure of listening to her play in Columbus, Ohio, earlier this year, and was just very impressed by her music, her mixing, and her obvious enjoyment and passion of her craft. So I started following her on Facebook, and shortly thereafter, she began posting these small-time promoter tips. And every single one was just full of fantastic advice, and I immediately knew that I wanted to bring Jessica onto the podcast. So without further ado, I introduce Miss Jessica Finner, who has graciously agreed to go forward with the interview, even though she's feeling a little under the weather. So we appreciate you being here, Jessica. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm super excited to share 30 great small-time promoter tips with our listeners, but I'd like to get to know you a little bit better first. So could you maybe give us a quick backstory and tell us how you got started in DJing and event promotion? Certainly. Um, I started going to raves when I was 16 in England, and at that time there really weren't any uh, female DJs out there, so it didn't cross my mind. It wasn't until I came to the States and was probably 21 that I had the opportunity to mess around with turntables for the first time. And my first experience, I actually spent three hours mixing records with no one else around without having any idea what the pitch control was for <laughs> and not wanting to touch it because I didn't know what it was. So that was my first DJing experience. Um, and then I got deeper into it probably in about 99 was when I started for real. I was dating a guy with turntables, so I had them at my disposal to practice all the time. And okay. was it. I was hooked. Awesome. So can you describe your, your style to us and maybe tell us how it's evolved over the years? I, I read somewhere that you had a hip-hop background. Yeah, I started out playing, you know, dance music that was around at that time, but then um, I lived in California for a year and had been really exposed to uh, Dr. Dre, The Chronic had just dropped at that time, and really exposed to Farside, Tribe Called Quest, 
that whole golden era of hip-hop. So These are some of my favorite groups right there. <laughs> right, so the 90, 91, 92, 93 um, really affected me, hip-hop, around that time, so 94. I started collecting those records and playing those, and then the, the following year after I started playing, I saw Qbert and D-Styles at an epic event um, in Wisconsin called Turned On To that pretty much everybody in the Midwest was at. Whenever you meet someone these days, it's like, were you at Turned On To? And I went, <laughs> and Hubert blew my mind, and I made sure I was first in line to get his autograph and meet uh, D-Styles, and I actually ended up developing a friendship with him and headed out to San Francisco and was lucky to mess around in the octagon with him and Flair. And, of course, that really impacted me, and I, I was really into turntablism for a while and um, started out doing hip-hop gigs. But my roots are in are in dance music, so that's what I ended up coming back to. Okay, so you kind of started in dance and then went to, when you moved to the States, kind of moved into hip-hop for a bit and right. then came, came back to your roots. Okay. Exactly. Cool. So um, now I'd like to t- uh, take a minute to talk about um, your promotions company. So on the blog, I talk a lot about becoming a better DJ through passion and purpose. And one thing I've noticed about you is that you seem to really go about things with intent. And this stands out to me because a lot of DJs and promoters sort of, I guess, half-ass things and then wonder why they don't build successful nights or get any kind of attention from other promoters or fans. So can we talk about Apart Music and your earlier recurring nights that you used to throw, Crave and Taste It, and then your current ones, and if you could just tell us maybe what the driving concepts are behind those events. Certainly. First of all, I guess I'd like to say I certainly half-assed many shows in my time. (laughs) That's how I learned not to half-ass them. Um, (laughs) Learning is a trial and error, and I certainly didn't know what I was doing a lot of my earlier shows, but I started out small. I didn't really intend to be, have this big intention of promoting events. started out just as something to do with friends and provide a venue for us because that we really didn't have much going on in Milwaukee. And it became bigger when one of our major clubs closed down, and probably our only major club at the time. Then I started doing more events. Um, so really it was filling a need. We didn't have, as people moved or clubs closed, I started doing more because otherwise there wasn't going to be anything. Know exactly what that's like. Yeah, yeah, as many small cities will know what that's like. As far as the part and um, the past events and current events, I had been doing For You events, which was my initial company. started in 2009 and learned a lot doing those, but by the time a couple of years ago rolled around, I really had learned a lot more and wanted to sort of start fresh and had a far more concise idea of what it took to make things work in this market. And so I rebranded as a part with that, with that intention. Crave was um, a Thursday night weekly. Taste It was a Friday night weekly, and they both ran for three years. Um, and I shut them down just this summer. But the concept of Crave was how do I make a weekly electronic dance music night work in this small city with no venues and um, very little music industry. And so I wanted to stay away from this sort of trap of, of name draw because once you start only bringing big names, then you can only keep bringing big names. Right. 
and uh, Milwaukee wasn't going to support that on a Thursday night. I already knew that people will not pay covers every week on a Thursday night, no matter what names you bring. Absolutely. You weren't going to be able to fill that, that budget need. So I did the whole thing anonymously. We never, ever advertised who was going to play. Every week, um, I just posted teaser info and bio info, um, a little bit about the style of music, what tracks we could expect to hear, production history as far as labels, to give people an idea of what music they could expect, but completely cancel out the name draw aspect. Okay. And that allowed me to do locals, it allowed me to do national and international DJs, and even the playing field as far as name draw. Um, and it worked out really well for three years. I was surprised that, that we could do that for that long, and it, it really went well. I love that idea. I mean, it kind of focuses on more on what, what kind of experience do you want to build for your audience and what, what is the, the driving you know, purpose behind it rather than you know, what names can I get and how long can I sustain that. And that was exactly it. It was bring the focus back to the party rather than who's playing. Back to the experience, um, and we really branded the name of the night rather than the club, which is a hip hop club. So we really focused on pushing crave, 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 and and selling that that crave experience to people, and trying to build that. So that's kind of cool because then you can, if you need to, you can take that brand or that you've built and kind of move it elsewhere. If it's not working at that venue or that venue gets shut down or something along those lines, you kind of don't lose your core audience. Right. Yep. That same draw remains whether whether you're changing artists or venues. And then a little bit about Taste It as well. That was also a alternative kind of a party, and we started that in a very small gay bar, which was, I think, the first gay bar in Milwaukee, okay. and it's been around for 25 years, not a normal venue that people would expect us to do dance music events, but the thing was, the gay community, to me, is very in touch with house music and electronic music, and also has that um, sense of freedom and diversity and acceptance that goes hand in hand with our culture. And I always say house music was born black and gay. Definitely. <laughs> so in a struggling market at a time where we had no venues and very little, people had very little interest in paying covers um, and it was hard to sustain shows, it seemed like a really good solution to go into this alternative venue where people were already in tune with with diversity, acceptance, self-expression, and build something there. So we did that there. Um, I had my partner at the time, Melody, came on board, and she's part of the gay community. I think that's very important to be integrated with the community you're working with. And we did really, she did flyers in Microsoft Paint, these really um, ugly but wonderful flyers. <laughs> Completely different than anything you would expect to see in promotions. Not glossy, not experienced, but it just fit the whole nature of the night. So both those nights were really geared towards working creatively in a difficult market, how to implement something in a different way that people would find attractive and, and make dance music work when there wasn't any really going on. Okay, yeah, that's great. I say I love that approach. So did did you carry those kind of concepts over into your, your current night's district in Beat Garden or are those kind of their own concepts in and of themselves? Now they're they're different concepts. You see what's happened since then is I feel that there's been this um 
people may hate the term EDM, but I've used it for years, but there's been this EDM explosion where dance music is becoming more popular, and that really opens up the possibilities and broadens what people are looking for because it broadens the market. So we wrapped up Taste It. We had to move venues because um, the venue actually sold. The owner passed away. And with moving venues, it lost some of that that core group and, and what it was built around. So it made sense to kind of wrap that night up and okay. start something new. So in its place, I've started District, which is also a Friday night weekly, but once or twice a month, I pull in other promoters to co-promote it. And what I've found over the last 18 months is this, there's been this real growth in young promoters and new promoters coming up and people wanting to do shows again because now there's more market and there's more interest. So it allows me to um, provide a core framework for promoters who maybe don't have as much experience and they get to book the acts that they want and run the door and just sort of have half the responsibility of running a show and I provide the design and the core promotions that come with, with a part automatically and with our built-in audience that we've created over doing Friday nights for three years. Wow, that's so cool. Yeah, and that's part of the district thing, too. It's almost like we're bringing in different areas of promoters and trying to you know, pull in different districts almost. The flip side for me is I get to see what other people are doing and present a broader range of music and ideas and creativity to my audience as well as other audiences that are out there. So it's kind of a building block and I just thought it was time to do something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. That gives you a good uh, framework for, I mean, it's, it's built-in framework for collaboration. I mean, that's how the night works and you know, that allows you to expose different crowds to each other and maybe not only that, but kind of learn from each other and be able to put your heads together on, you know, how to promote nights in different ways or different sounds you want to bring in. I just, that's a really cool concept. Yeah, and it's absolutely a huge part of what I've learned over the years is to stay open. Like, even when you think you know something, stay open, stay open to different audiences, music, ideas, ways that people are doing things because there is always something to learn. So having this collaboration opportunity just opens up the doors for that. Yeah, I think that when people kind of stop trying to learn things, they think they know it all, That's uh, it kind of leads you to, that. that's where the jaded promoter or DJ comes in when they just kind of, they stagnate. So that's that's really cool that you've kind of built that right into your system. Thank you. Um, and so, uh, what about Beat Garden? Beat Garden is in place of Crave, which was the Thursday night. And I'm hoping, we'll see, but I'm hoping that the time has come around where I can be a little more, just slightly more genre-specific, and that's my hope with Beat Garden. First of all, it's, it's seasonal. In the fall, it'll be Beatbox and winter because it's an outdoor event in the summer, which is great to be able to be out on a patio, hence garden. But it's a little more focused towards the sounds that I personally find appealing that are coming out now. Okay. Um, I learned years ago when I was part of an outfit called Project that was amazing and went on to do great things, but was very um, forward-thinking in tech house and techno. And it was really enthusiastically received for four months, and then it dwindled. In a small market being maybe too genre specific 
however much a core group may like it, you're going to be pulling on that core group again and again and again to keep her night sure. supported. So I've always kept quite a wide range, but I'm hoping that this feet garden, feet box night, maybe I can just showcase some of the more current sounds that are around right now that I personally am really enjoying. We'll okay. see how it goes. Awesome. So, um, and you've also kind of expanded uh, possibly more recently into kind of the internet market here with uh, Apart Radio. So how does that work? What's the idea behind that? Um, Apart Radio was just another platform to expose people to music in Milwaukee. We don't have, still, we don't have a single club that's electronic music based. There's a couple of clubs we go into and do some nights there, but mostly they're top 40 or hip-hop clubs. And there's no radio station that has a focus on electronic music. There are a couple of independent stations that do one or two shows a week. But but really it was just a platform to um, showcase some of the artists that we bring in and their mixes. So some of the maybe national artists that people aren't seeing regularly here. And then a couple of regional ones, too. You can mostly expect to see national and international artists on there, all exclusive mixes or recorded live at our shows. But then some of the regional artists that I'm really excited about, we will feature mixes from them occasionally, too. Okay, great. So do you sometimes, maybe when you pull in a headliner from, from out of town, um, you just say, hey, we're doing this apart radio thing, can we record your set? And if they agree to it, then you can present that as part of your show? Yep, the Hyperactive uh, podcast that's on there was recorded live when he played for us. There's also one of my regional DJs, Jason Allen. His set was recorded live at an, uh, a part event, too. Um, the one McLean one, which is the most recent one from DFA Records, he did that exclusively for us. Um, at his oh, home. wow. It's, it's pretty exciting. It's pretty cool. Okay, great. So what is your favorite thing about the scene there in Milwaukee? Um, I would say that ever since I've been involved in the music scene here, there's always been, there's no shortage of of DJs. There's like such a cross talent, cross range of talented DJs here from hip hop to down tempo to house to techno. There's no lack of enthusiasm for music in that regard. And I've also seen DJs here really support each other. I was heavily supported. I didn't expect it when I first started DJing. I was prepared for, you know, a lot of sexism or assumptions that I was just going to try and get by being a girl. Sure. But I was really supported, and it made a huge difference to me. So I think that's one of the great things here is music. Is, people love it here, for sure. Okay. So, you know, the uh, counter question then, what's the, the least favorite thing, or maybe if you don't want to put it that way, your biggest struggle that you have there in Milwaukee with the scene? Ironically, um, it's a lack of audience. You would think having so many people who love music DJing, um, you would have this, this audience. And we do have a great core audience, but again, if you take all the people who DJ and then those DJs who have responsibilities and those DJs who are producing, it comes down to a pretty small group when it comes to audience. To have a thriving audience, you need to have a component that are not DJs, that are not music industry, that are just kids who really like music and like going out to dance. And we've really been lacking that in Milwaukee for years now. Yeah, I can relate to that. It it seems like, especially in small towns, you tend to do a lot of the um, preaching to the choir thing. 
Right, exactly. Okay. Well, that's why we're talking to you, had to learn how you get past some of these struggles. So now that we've gotten to know a little bit about you, um, let's get on to the small-time promoter tips. I, we've been sitting here talking. I've already got so many ideas already, and we haven't even gotten to the tips yet. So okay. um, I thought we could just maybe go through these one by one. Um, you can tell us the tip, and then if we want to, we can have a little back and forth about it and then move on to the next. Does that sound like a plan? Certainly. Okay, great. So what is small-time promoter tip number one? Know your market. Know your market, simple enough. This is key. I mean, one of the things that we talk about a lot on the blog is uh, how important it is to play, like, you know, the right gigs in the first place, and this kind of goes along with that, I think. It's also important to throw the right shows in the first place. You know, like in, the, in episode two, I said, if you if you just build it, you're probably going to lose. <laughs> and uh, so I think that's why it's so important to be, you know, involved with your own community and know who those people are. And also to know what they will respond to and what their limits are and how much money they will spend and how often right. they'll go out and to have a feel for those things. Obviously, you can't know exactly all these things, but to have an awareness of those things really helps when you're developing your events. You know, it's kind of funny how many parallels there are between actually DJing and then promoting events with DJs where you, you almost have to have this sense of crowd reading on maybe more of a macro level yeah. to, fi- to, figure, to bring the crowds in in the first place. And so that's kind of interesting how that parallels, I think. Yeah, there's a lot of parallels. So, okay, uh, what about number two? Aim to please everyone, audience, artists, and venues. Success depends on all three. Success depends on all three. So how could we please our audience? I think a number of ways. Part of that ties in with what we were saying about number one. Know what your audience wants. Know what their limits are. Know what they look for. Know what makes them happy. Um, But also give them an experience. I think it's important to... I've found that audiences, you can book all the great DJs in the world and sometimes they'll show up and sometimes they won't, but they want to be given more of an experience rather than if you just put out a flyer saying, hey, we got this DJ at this club, you should come. But if you, they know you're going to give them something more than that, people want to go out and have something to talk about and remember at the end of the night and have been taken to a place. So oh, Definitely. Yeah, I know we're going to, I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole because I know we're going to talk about that later, but that is so crucial, just that building an experience instead of just booking a name. Right. Um, So with that being said, how can we please our artists? There's the technical basics of pleasing your artists, which is make sure you fulfill their gear requirements is key. Many of us promoters are DJs and we know what it's like to show up and not have what you expected to have or what you're comfortable playing on. Right. So make sure you fulfill your gear requirements, make sure your communication is on point as far as what what they need to know before they get there, what the show is going to be like, what they can expect. And then also to give them an experience too. I've definitely had shows with great artists that are lightly attended, as many of us probably have in small markets. But if you take care of your artist and you take care of your audience, and things have been communicated well, they should still have a great time. The audience that's there should still really enjoy that DJ, and that DJ should still really enjoy that audience, even if it's small. 
and you take care of them well. So at the end of the night, they end up leaving happy. And always, always, always pay your artists what you agreed to pay them. That's huge for me. I don't care if I expect to lose money. Always make sure you have it covered. Take care of your artists. Definitely. And then what about the actual venue itself, the owners or management staff? How do we make sure that that we please them? Well, the number one way to please your venue is to make them money. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Put money in their tills. That's why they are hiring us um, or letting us use their venue or whatever whatever the agreement may be. Their bottom line is they want to improve business. But a big one that I think we miss sometimes as promoters is acting like venues owe us something or we're doing them a favor or really not being connected with them as if they were partners in making events work. And I think if we can treat venue owners as if we're working together, listen to them and communicate what our goals are, I think that's a huge, huge step. I also have found that being really honest about whether or not you guys fit each other is huge. It can save a lot of struggle rather than going into a venue where you don't fit and wanting to do your own thing, which isn't going to be something they want, but pretending it's something they want just because you want somewhere to do nights. Avoid that too. Like be, be realistic about what sort of crowd you bring. If it's some swanky club, they may not want an underground EDM night going on there, and then you're just going to run into trouble later on. So. Yeah, I've learned that the hard way. <laughs> um, so I guess we can move on to promoter, small-time promoter tip number three. That is respect your art enough to make it your business. Passion will fuel your work, but business savvy will dictate how long that fuel lasts. I love this one. Um, I tend to pull a lot of concepts from the business and startup world, and I think there's an important balance to be had because you don't, want to be too businessy and stuffy but you also don't want to kind of do everything all willy-nilly and it seems like uh, at least in my experience most people kind of take the second option they just kind of throw everything together and it just really bugs me when someone tries to throw an event and they don't have all their ducks in a row right and um, so I have a lot of of interests and parallels that that kind of come from the business world and I'm just curious if your business savvy comes from somewhere else in your life or did you get that solely from working in the business of music um a lot of it comes from experience within the music world um I was in I've had management experience too I was in uh, fine dining restaurant management Um, and in general management positions. So I've run some businesses and staffs, which I think has helped me look at the sort of venue promoter relationship from both sides of the coin. But mostly, I think this tip does come from my experience as a promoter and DJ. My first few years promoting, I mean, there's no doubt I've always been passionate, but I was just burning myself out, not doing things all from... uh, for the love point of view. Yeah, it gets tiresome if you don't if you don't treat it uh, treat it that way with the the business savvy kind of aspects of it. So educating myself on, I guess, really realizing that promoting, however much we may not like this, what does the word promoting mean? It means to push something to other people to make them aware of it. And as promoters, we're trying to get people to want to go to what we do. 
So there came a point of acceptance that this involves marketing strategies and advertising strategies. And sure. when you can pull those in, there's an aspect of psychology in both of those things. So Definitely. really treating my art and love with some of those business aspects, but also putting my back against the wall financially. I also had a sort of aha moment where I realized as long as I'm subsidizing my promotions with other income, I'm going to be let myself off the hook a little bit as far as making them work financially. So when I when I stopped doing that and, and put all my eggs in one basket, as it were, and said, you know, my promotions have to make the money to sustain themselves, you start elevating your your product and holding, well, I did, started holding myself to a higher standard of really making sure I was doing everything I could to make this work. So that that's a big piece of that for me, too. Okay, great. Um, tip number four. Find a mentor or outfit you admire, develop a relationship. Small markets are tricky. Learn from others' experience. Did you have a mentor? I did have a mentor. I had several people who supported and helped me over the years, but James Amato was definitely my mentor um, for a few years. Okay. What were you able to learn from your mentor? Um, he was a promoter before I was, and, and then also... Um, part owner of a, one of our legendary clubs in Milwaukee Mantra Lounge before he then moved on to Smart Bar Chicago to be the director there and then out to LA to work out there. So from him what was huge was when I was moving into doing bigger promotions, more business oriented, working with agents, working with bigger contracts, I could call him anytime and say, what does this mean or how should I deal with this agent who's saying this or coming back at me with this? A big thing was knowing what reasonable offers were. I, could, I called him many times and said, what is reasonable for this person? Because when you're starting out, I had absolutely no idea. And I see younger promoters now being taken all the time because we are impressed by these DJs, the people we look up to. We don't want to lowball them. We don't necessarily know how to work with booking agents. And um, it's great to be able to have a resource and say, what should I be offering for this person? Or if they booked that artist in the past, to know how that show did. Um, yeah, that's definitely something that I, I still struggle with. And, of course, I, I'm not uh, making a living off of promotions. It's something I do on occasion. But um, any time I've had to, to kind of book somebody that's a little maybe out of my league, it's it's always kind of intimidating to to come at them with because they always want to know what will you pay me and you always want to know what will you accept and nobody right. really wants to give that up at first <laughs> right and there's really very simple methods of going about it but if if you don't have that person to kind of teach you that and just say this is how you do your first offer and you learn that an agent isn't going to be offended, and if they are, they're not being very professional, you know. Yeah. You you're offered, they come back, either you go forward or you don't, and that's pretty much normal. That's a huge relief to have that practice and have also some guidance in what you should be offering. Also, language. He, he guided me a lot in language and, and, well, just say this and how to work with people um, diplomatically but also not be obviously an amateur sure you know, 
um, intimidated or, or not sure how to handle people. So. Yeah, Google will only get you so far when it comes to that stuff. I can see where uh, having an actual experienced mentor is, is invaluable. It is, absolutely. And especially if there's someone in your market, um, then they have that insight into, into the audience as well. Okay, uh, small-time promoter tip number five. Number five, identify your motivation for promoting and embrace it. Okay, identify your motivation. So you're not saying your motivation should be this or that. You're saying be honest with yourself about what it is. Absolutely, yep. And then I, I noticed uh, when you had posted this originally, I, I went through and kind of compiled them all into a list. You had put kind of a side note that people apply themselves for different reasons. It's okay to want to just try it, be influenced by family, build your network, own a club one day, play out regularly, gain exposure, make money, or just do it for the love. Be honest about what you want from doing shows and tailor your events and promotions to meet that goal. I think that's totally key for happiness as a promoter or as a DJ or producer or whatever is just having that kind of self-honesty. Yes, I think you're totally right. It's key for happiness and I think it's also a big factor in how well you'll conduct your business, um, how principled you will be. If you can be honest with yourself about why you're doing it, then you don't have to be shady in any other ways if you're not kind of trying to pretend to yourself that you have other motivations. And I think in our in the promotional world, which is not regulated and, and so often an amateur industry, which is fine, but there does tend to be a lot of petty politics, and you hear so often, do it for the love, you should just do this for the love, and you see posts, and you see people criticizing each other and saying it should all be for the love, which is great, and obviously the ultimate goal is to do what you love. But also, people take what they love and they do it for business, and they want to make a living doing it. Or some people do just want to own a club, or they do want to do it because it seems like the cool thing to do. And I think that's absolutely fine. And I think there's this sort of irony that in all other realms of business, that's fine. No one says you should be an accountant for the love of it. You know, no right. You should be a lawyer only if you want to like stand up for people's legal rights and social justice. There isn't that sort of highly moral expectation. And yet I think there is that with doing music events. And yet, ironically, we have a lot of shadiness in music events and a lot of people getting pissed off with each other and people getting ripped off and people bitching behind each other's backs. Definitely. So this standard somehow doesn't, doesn't play out even though people like to say this is why you should do it. And I think that could be shifted a little bit if people would just say, you know what, it's okay to do it because you think you could make some money doing it or it's okay to do it because um, your friends will think you're cool. Try it. Go for it. Try and learn this business and do the best you can and see how it works out for you. Because generally, if people don't succeed or they don't love it, they're going to stop, one or the other, you know, sure. in anything. So if they succeed, then that's actually good for us. That's good for our industry. That's good for our community, whether they're doing it to be cool or not. If they succeed and they're doing well, that's great. And if they love it, that's great. Certainly. Okay, so... Uh, Small-time promoter tip number six, and this is a short and sweet one. 
Network equals net worth. Network equals net worth. So can you kind of explain that to us? I have the feeling you're talking about more than just money here. I am. It's kind of, um, you know, when you say Richard Branson is worth this much money or, you know, these, these business moguls. And I think what I'm getting at is one's value as a promoter in a small market especially can be directly affected by the health of your network because so much depends when you're working in a challenging market on having a good network of people to work with. So your value as a promoter, your effectiveness, the worth of what you will be able to offer can really be directly in correlation with the health and strength of your network. Okay. Um, Number seven. Number seven. Promoting is probably the most controversial role to take on in a small music scene. Reinforce your focus, bulletproof your soul, and be prepared. I love bulletproof your soul. That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think uh, when I looked this one up on your Facebook page, you had a quote from Hunter S. Thompson on there. The music business is a cruel and shallow money trench, a long plastic hallway where thieves and pimps run free and good men die like dogs. There's also a negative side. Right. Okay, and small-time promoter tip number eight? Um, The quality of your sound system should be as important as the quality of your talent. Uh, Man, you'd think that this one would be self-explanatory, but how often does this get neglected? I mean, you know, I understand that sometimes you have to work with what you've got, but at the same time, we're all in this for the music, right? So how could you not make your sound system a top priority? Yeah. I think in Milwaukee, where we don't have electronic music venues and top 40 clubs or the bars that we end up working in um, don't put as high a priority on having good sound systems as they have any at all, it can be easy for people to overlook this because it is expensive. It's expensive to hire sound, but there's no point in paying for DJs if you're not going to pay for sound. I would rather lose money and have good sound and a quality product and then build on that reputation and that sound um, then provide something that's that's substandard and not going to showcase your DJ well. Yeah, it's all about that building that experience overall like we had mentioned earlier. Exactly. Okay, um, what's tip number nine? Word of mouth is greater than any promotional tool or strategy. Bingo. (laughs) The social media world is, you know, an obvious go-to place these days for promoting yourself and your events, but everyone is doing it, and it just kind of, after a while, just kind of becomes noise. And, you know, in episode two of the podcast, we talked about building buzz instead of hype, and and that's kind of what we were talking about. You know, buzz is primarily fueled by that whole word-of-mouth thing. I mean, when people are talking about the event and it's promoting itself, that's a really good place to be in. And they're going to talk about it because of the experience you're giving them over anything. And right away for for anyone, when they hear from someone who's not involved with an event, this was great, or I'm going to this, it carries a whole different weight than if it's coming from someone affiliated with the promoting. Absolutely. Okay, um, number 10. Know your value and build it into your budget, venue agreements, etc. If your hard work consistently results in loss, you will burn out. 
Burnout will take doing it for the love and stomp all over it. Absolutely. Yeah, we've kind of touched on that a little bit. And I wonder if you've ever experienced that kind of burnout moment. I have. I've probably experienced several burnout moments, but there was only one where I actually acted on it and uh, announced my retirement from, from promoting. At the time, I was going through a lot of personal challenges. My mother had been diagnosed with terminal leukemia, and I had just thrown a, I think it was an anniversary show with Titsworth, and it was lightly attended. And this was maybe 2010, um, when we were really struggling here with the economy, and people were not paying covers, and people just weren't spending money, period. And so at that point, I just thought, I can't do this anymore. And I did actually stop doing music um, or promoting promotions for six months. Um, I felt like I didn't know what people wanted or if they wanted anything. I got to that point where I thought people just don't, don't have it in them to go out and, and hear music and spend money on it at the moment. So. Okay. So tip number 11 is about contracts. What can you tell us about that? Use contracts, especially when starting out. They protect in obvious ways, but more commonly prevent drama from misunderstandings. Set time in the contract, payment in the contract, equipment in the contract. Now, when you're doing shows, do you typically provide or make sure that you have a contract just for when you're doing shows with like big names and headliners, or do you recommend that no matter who is playing, no matter the show, you always have a contract? No, um, with the big names, they typically provide their own contracts. And nowadays, I don't do contracts for the locals. However, there have been times where I've kicked myself. <laughs> and, oh, man, I didn't, I didn't do this. And a contract doesn't have to be some big form, printed out statement that everyone signs, but it can be as simple as an email that includes the basic things. And the beauty of doing contracts is you will learn what those basic things are need to be and what it's important to have everyone understand. Yeah, so it's important to kind of just all be on the same page. Even I mean, you don't have to be a lawyer and write up a big fancy document, but it, but just have those lines of communications open and make sure everything's clear on all sides. And I would say in writing, in an email, using sure. email. And, and if you're starting out, I would say do it every time because that'll be the practice that will avoid a lot of misunderstandings um, in the beginning. Later on, you become more adept at just integrating those things. Yeah. Do you have a, any specific stories about kind of being burned by not using a contract or not kind of being clear about those things? It was funny because a few days after I posted this tip, it's a slightly different context, but I was co-promoting, you know, doing one of the shows with a co-promoter, and I had not made sure in writing that they understood how the door was to be run and how the cover should be and and they pulled the cover early and just did a couple of things off their own back which was fine and it was a learning experience but I had to go back and look and say to myself I did not make this clear in writing I didn't say to them you know I didn't reinforce we had spoken about it on the phone but then I didn't send them that outline that I usually send to everyone right and it came back on me right away, and I was I was laughing because I'd literally posted this tip a few days before. Yeah, I had a pretty similar story. I I brought uh, a fairly well known name out of Detroit into uh, 
into a local club here in Dayton, Ohio, and they said they were going to provide their own uh, door person, so I didn't bother booking someone. Well, I learned quickly to bring my own door person because they did kind of the same thing. They pulled cover early, and I ended up losing a lot of money on that show just because people were coming in late and just walking right in the door. Right. And uh, so probably a combination of that and not knowing what I was doing to negotiate the price, like we talked about earlier, uh, yeah. resulted in me having a, a really fun night, but um, I, I definitely paid for it. Yeah. yeah. So, Okay, and tip number 12. Tip number 12, small markets equal big drama. 1% of the time set the record straight, 99% will burn out if ignored. Be the queen, uh, rise above. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I, a couple of years ago, um, we have a recurring outdoor event, and I had my all my gear stolen, like a, a MacBook Pro and a Zone 2D uh, mixing device, and my headphones, my backpack was all stolen by uh, a pretty well-known local. And, you know, I got a lot of people who are in the know saying, go confront him, go punch him in the face, go do all the... And, that's just not the way I handle things, and, and this is a huge part of the reason why. You, you definitely come out on top if you handle it maturely, even if you've been wronged. Yeah. And, and it definitely, I mean, it would, have, it would have killed my passion for this whole thing if I had just gone in arm swinging and, and not even getting all the information. So right. um, even, even though I was definitely wronged in that situation, I'm glad that I took a step back and didn't react right away and start blasting people on Facebook who may or may not have been involved and all that sort of thing. Exactly, and you make a really good point there, which is so much happens on the Internet these days, and that's just a whole different breeding ground for drama. Um, Definitely. And people conduct themselves differently online than they do in person. And I made myself, in the early years of doing this, there's, there's so much drama, you know, in this market, but I would make myself, like so stressed out and practically sick with worrying about all these things that were flying around and I think possibly being a, a woman in a male dominated market makes me even more fun to create drama around and I would I, I worried about it so much I wouldn't understand why people were saying these things or what I could do about it and how could people think this and I needed to set the record straight and I try and explain things online. So two things that I really learned was, one, if I just don't get involved with it and just get on with what I need to do, that's spending my energy far more wisely. And two is that if you respond, you just feed it. You just give people something to respond back to. So if you just leave it, there's nothing for them to keep perpetuating. Definitely, and people over time will certainly notice you know, who the people are that are just constantly putting people on blast all day on social media and people who are taking the high road. Right. And the people who don't notice that, you probably don't care much about what they think anyway. Right. <laughs> so, um, okay, so moving on to tip number 13. Everyone is pushing music, but more than hearing DJs play, audiences want an experience. Pinpoint what you offer, what sets you apart, and weave it into your promotions. Uh, a thousand times, yes. <laughs> if you if you take only one thing from this podcast today, make it this. Audiences want an experience. And there's more to an experience than somebody, you know, playing a pre-recorded track over a loud system. I like how you said 
pinpoint what sets you apart. I'm assuming that had something to do with naming your promotions company? It does, and that's me pinpointing, you know, part of what I, the name of what I offer is a part, and putting it into my promotions there is just a little tongue-in-cheek um, sort of example of what you can what you can do, you know. Yeah, it's advertising and, and marketing and promoting, but I really thought about with my brand, what is it I want people to picture when they think of a part? What is the experience that a part represents? And trying to weave, weave that into promotions, yeah. Okay, so um, moving on to tip number 14, we're talking about numbers. Count everything. Attendance, expenses, income, unpaid guests, bar sales if possible, weeks promoted, RSVPs versus shows, email bounces, SMS responses, etc. Numbers communicate your promotional health. The more intimately you know your business, the more intuitive your decisions will become. Now I want everybody to take notice of that. The more intimately you know your business, if you're passionate about something or someone for that matter what do you want to do you want to get intimate with them you want to know that thing or that person or whatever like the back of your own hand and get down to the nitty-gritty and getting all those details in order just allows you to make well-informed decisions I mean, you can't make decisions about things that you don't know intimately at least not good ones and not consistently exactly right I mean it's even if you think about going to college and higher education we go through all this work and all this studying and hard work, but you come out the other side and you have this, people want to hire you, supposedly, because you will now have a more intuitive sense of what to do in that field. And so this is really the same thing. It seems like a lot of work and it seems dry and boring, but if you take the time to do these things, you're just going to actually, it'll be less hard work to be a good promoter or whatever business you're in. Okay, now number 15 is a very practical tip for promoters. What do you have to say for number 15? Keep a backup bag of extras in your car at all times. Several RCAs, headphone jacks, XLRs, quarter-inch and RCA adapters and connectors, power cords for CDJs, mixers, and strips, headphones, tractor Serato time card, and sound cards, and extra mixers, CDJ, or turntable if possible. Know who to call for each piece of equipment you don't own. Yeah, this kind of takes a step back from a lot of the more kind of conceptual and psychological discussion and just says, hey, be prepared, <laughs> have everything yeah. that you need, have all your ducks in a row. And I just cannot stress this enough. I mean, not only do you owe it to yourself your and your audience and your talent to be well prepared, but just that sense of security that you get, I guess, with coming with you know having way more stuff than you need is just invaluable yeah someone made a good point after i posted this which was to make sure you have a good car alarm and don't advertise that you have all this stuff in your trunk <laughs> right. but i really do have all this stuff in my trunk now and i went through years of like oh man i my, i didn't have a headphone jack or my guest didn't have a headphone jack but i had three sitting at home you know and i had my whole little backup case with power strips and whatever sitting at home and eventually I realized you know this is I need to make a travel bag of stuff where I don't have to have everything but at least what I listed on there you know and some of the things you do want several of and then it feels great when you're setting up and someone's RCA's are bad on their sound card which happens all the time 
and you can just go to your car and get them. Yeah, I'm sure that you're probably like me, especially earlier on, you probably have been burned by that more than once. <laughs> oh, yeah, and even down to mixers, I've forgotten my own headphones God knows how many times in the early days I had to call call friends in the area of where I was playing and say, God, can I borrow your headphones? And so now I just have two pairs in the car. <laughs> yeah, I've gotten a little bit paranoid about this, even just as it relates to my DJing, not even throwing shows. I mean, I've got to the point now where even if I'm going somewhere and they're like, we've got a mixer and a set of decks and blah, 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 I'll still bring, I have, you know, a Tractor S4 that I bring with me in a bag and my own audio DJ8 timecode uh, device and backup CDs. I mean, I just bring whatever I need so that if two things fail, I still have a backup. Maybe yeah. that's going a little far, but even if I never use that, just the sense of security it brings is invaluable. <laughs> Definitely. And especially with sound cards these days, um, something I've run into more than a couple of times as a promoter and as a DJ is saying, oh, yeah, there'll be Serato there already. This DJ is using it. I had one gig I showed up for, and the new Serato box had just come out. And I didn't have the drivers for it on my computer, and I ended up having to use someone else's computer because I didn't bring my sound card. Mm. I was supposed to be using the person before me's sound card, and their CDJs weren't set up, and it was just a mess. It worked out, but always just have your own stuff, yeah. Yeah, you just can't predict some of that stuff. No, I mean, you can't. I had a situation where I was able to bail myself out because of that, because I brought, uh, like I said, I brought my, my S4 with me as a backup to a gig, and I was going to be playing on somebody's uh, CDJs with timecode, and I forgot my timecode CDs, so at least I had taken the initiative and to bring extra stuff it would have helped if i would have just remembered the cds in the first place but um at least you know having a backup plan i was able to to bail myself out and not have to drive you know 40 minutes back to my house to figure it out here's a side note on that one an extra tip you can download the time code for serato or track to save it as a track in your itunes and that way you can always just burn a cd if you forget cds time code you can just have it on your computer and rip it yes definitely of course unless you're like me and you have one of the newer macbooks with no optical drive <laughs> <laughs> all right and that pretty much wraps up part number one of the podcast now by the way on that last note where we were talking about time code um the solution to that is obviously to carry some kind of external optical drive with you which i do happen to do um, but anyways, um, thank you so much for tuning in. That was just an awesome bunch of content, and I can't wait for you guys to hear part two. It's just as good, maybe even better. So please make sure that you guys tune in and keep on spinning. Thanks for listening to the Passionate DJ Podcast at www.passionatedj.com. Check out the fan page at facebook.com slash passionatedj or on Twitter at DJ with Passion. And always remember to keep on spinning.